Well, children, you have to think way back. Yeah, come on. You have to think way back before you guys were alive, probably, to a time when there weren't phones. I know that might be hard to imagine a world without phones. But you couldn't just pick up a phone and, like, record a video message and send to someone. Okay, you couldn't hop on Zoom, have a Zoom meeting with someone in another country. Back to a time when you couldn't even send emails. Back to when you had to pick, this is really strange, I know, really strange. You had to pick up a piece of paper and a pen and you had to write a letter. You guys, do you guys even know how to write letters? You do. Oh, okay, good, good. I'm not stretching too far back here. It's not like a stone tablet, but like a letter with a pen, right? So you had to write a letter and send it to someone. And I want you to imagine that you've got a really uh, interesting pen pal, someone maybe in South Africa, and you write to one another every month, and every month you happily get a new letter and you open it up and you see what your pen pal said. But, but you've never met the pen pal in real life. And you've never seen a photo of them because, well, they haven't sent you, sent you a photo before. And so you sort of, you write the letter and you send them, one turns up, and the whole time you've got a, a mental picture of what your friend looks like, right? And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, he or she, you know, has blue eyes and, and long flowing hair or whatever it is you might imagine that they look like. And then one day you receive a letter from your friend and the letter says, I'm coming to New Zealand. I'm going to be there in December. And I'll meet you right now, I know. And I will meet you at the airport. Now, of course, it's hard, isn't it? Because you don't, who do you look for? You know, is it that person? Is it that person? Is it that person? Which one is? So what your mum's smart, of course. And mum says, what you do, honey, is you make a sign and you write their name on it and you stand there with the sign. So you stand there with the sign with the name of your pen pal and you stand there and wait and you wait and you wait and the airport's delayed, the flight's delayed, waiting and you need to go to the bathroom and you're waiting. It's the worst thing. You're going to you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And then eventually someone walks up and says, oh, it's you. And you go, oh, you look nothing like what I expected. Well, I thought you had brown hair. And he's like, no, my hair's my hair's blonde. Whoa, that was not what I expected. You're way taller than I expected. And they look completely different. And for the last, you know, four years, you've been picturing something and you find out something very, very different. Well, that's a little bit what Christmas is like. We get to Christmas and we see this cute, lovely little baby in a manger, don't we, in our nativity scenes. And there he is, this little cute baby. And we, and we can come up with all these ideas of what this baby might be like that when we turn to God's word, we find out he is very different than what we may have expected. And that's why every Christmas we come back again and we think about who this baby in the stall is. Who is, as the song we're going to sing soon, who is he in yonder stall? Who is this child? Why did he come? Why did the incarnation happen? Why did Jesus come down to earth? It's a very important question, isn't it? And we need to know the answer. Because, as we confessed earlier, he is our only hope in life and in death. And our worship and praise of him is connected with how much we know about him and know of him. And so we want to seek to learn to love him and grow in our knowledge of him. So let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came down at Christmas. We thank you for this glorious gift of your son. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to worship him, 
Help us to know him and to know about him. We ask that you'd help these children every Christmas to grow in their knowledge and fear and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us all to minister to them and to give them glimpses of what Jesus looks like in our care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're turning through to Hebrews. We'll return to Titus again in a couple of weeks. But we're turning through to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at just verse 14 and 15 today, but we'll pick up in the reading at verse 10. This is God's infallible and holy word for you this morning. For it was fitting that he, being Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, And bringing many sons to glory, sorry that he was God the Father, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to make those who are being, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we consider it, let us come to him in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that uh, without your help, this word will bear no fruit in our heart. That Father, unless your son speaks to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we will leave here and be completely unaffected by it. We may be puffed up with knowledge. We may grow in understanding. And yet, Lord, it will bear no fruit. And Father, we long to become like your Son. We long to worship Him 
We long to put him on and to put off the works of the flesh. And so we need you to, to send forth the Spirit of God into our hearts that this word might be received by power, that, Lord, I wouldn't just speak with words of wisdom or human oratory, but rather with power sent from on high, that we as a people might be built up and fed, and that you as our God might be glorified, honoured, and adored by all. <clears throat> In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who is he in yonder stall? We just sung. Verse 14 and 15 is our text. Let me just read that again for you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. There is a connection, a proportionate connection, between your knowledge of the truth, your knowledge of God, and your worship of God. What I mean by that is, the more you grow to know and, and love and understand the Lord, the, the more your worship can grow. There's not a like, necess necessary equal, you know, like if my brain gets bigger, my worship gets bigger. But there is a connection between the one that we know and what we know of him and our worship of him. And when we get to Christmas, there's always that inevitable danger of familiarity, right? My wife and I were speaking about this. We went through our regular Friday protocol, which is at one point we sat down, and Friday is one of my sermon writing days. So we sat down having a cup of coffee, and my beloved said to me, so what are you preaching on on Sunday? And we started talking about it. She always asks. It's a helpful uh, way for me to testify, actually know what I'm going to be talking about. But she asked the question, and, and she said, one of the things I love about Christmas is how familiar it is. You know, we sing the same carols, we read those wonderful texts, and it's so lovely every single year. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? That we can kind of just go through the motions. We go to the carol service, we go to the Sunday service, we go to the Christmas Day service, we see the nativity scene, we sing the carols, and then we're back into normal life again. The question is, how do we foster hearts that erupt in praise and joy and worship when we see the incarnation of God? When we see God made flesh. If you don't know what incarnation means, it's the word we use to describe God becoming human, putting on human flesh. And that's what we are considering today. We're considering the incarnation itself. What does it mean for God to put flesh on? And we're considering why he did that. Why did God become man? 
Let's look at those things. In verse 14, we're told, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since, since we're human, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, that, that might not strike you very much. You might think to yourself, well, you know, I've heard this all before, Logan. God, man, the God, man. You know, God can do anything. It's not that, like, I know it's special, but I've been here before. You know, it doesn't grip my heart the way it did the first time I tried to ponder on the reality that God became a man. What does it mean for God to partake in flesh and blood. And then I thought, how, how do I help us begin to get our mind around this? And, and when you start asking that question, you quick start realizing that you can't. That there is a level of mystery here that the mind just cannot comprehend. So then the next question becomes, how do I begin to peer into this that my heart might be led to worship? How do I ponder on something I can't understand so that I might worship the one I can know? And as I pondered that question, the words of the Westminster Confession came back to me. If you've never read the Westminster Confession of Faith, you are doing yourself a disservice and you should go home today and Google it and read the whole thing through. It's not very long, but the wording is incredible. But I want to read to you from chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the section talking about defining, describing with biblical terminology what God is. Okay, so this is chapter 2. And I want you to listen to the words they use to describe God. They say, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things together according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory. He is terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. And then in the next paragraph, they continue. They say, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, all sufficient. He is not standing in need of any creatures, nor does he derive any glory from them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath the most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to him is contingent 
or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. And to him is due from angels and men every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, that may have wafted straight over your head. But God the Son, think about this for a second. God the Son, who is infinite in being, became finite. He who was, or is, I should say, pure spirit, invisible, without body, put on a body. He who is immutable, put on mutable flesh. Mutable means changeable. He who is immense, put on the opposite of immense. I don't think there's a word for that, but the opposite of immense. He who is eternal became temporary. Who is incomprehensible became comprehensible. He who is most wise had to learn. He who is most holy remained holy but put on corruptible flesh. Do you get the picture here? He who is perfect from the beginning, filled with all life, all glory, all goodness, who is due all praise, all honor, all glory, came and dwelt in a manger, brothers and sisters. How does that work? I don't know. But he did it. He who was from the beginning was born of a woman. I mean, what does that even mean? How does the Word who created all things and sustains all things simultaneously be God present everywhere and only in a womb while holding the entire galaxy together? while ensuring that Mary's DNA particles don't fall apart. Calvin puts it this way. Here is something marvelous. That's an understatement, isn't it? Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross, yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. I hope you realize that when God became man, he didn't lose anything of his godness. I mean, there's lots of heresies that say that. If anyone ever tells you that, that Jesus lost something or shared something or poured something away, it's wrong. He is truly divine 
and he is truly man. So he is just as much a human being as you are while simultaneously being the God of the entire universe. I don't know how that works. And neither do you. And praise God we don't. Because we will spend all eternity staring at him in wonder. Because when, when the new heavens and the new earth are made, this is, this is something mind-blowing, when the new heavens and the new earth are made, Jesus will continue to be physically present somewhere. I don't know where, don't ask me where, but he'll be somewhere. And at the same time, he will be present with every single one of us, not just by his spirit, but by his virtue of being God and by our union with him. He will be simultaneously there and you'll be able to see him with your eyes and simultaneously he will dwell within you and you will know he is within you far greater than you do right now. This is our Lord, brothers and sisters. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the truest description of a miracle. Creation out of nothing has nothing on the incarnation of God. Just worship him, brothers and sisters. Just look into your nativity scene. And please don't say cute baby. And don't teach your children. I mean, you can tell them it's a cute baby. But don't just get them to stop there. Take your children and say, it's the God man. Love him. Worship him. Praise him for his infinite glory. The one of whom the cherubim were declaring, holy, holy, holy. While he was in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That is our call to worship today. And every day of our life. And for all eternity. Thus the incarnation sits before us as a declaration of his glory. But why did he do it? Let me point your attention to two reasons why he did it. Two reasons for the incarnation. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 14, that he himself partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. The devil, the devil in, in creation became became the ruler of this earth, we're told. Not, not the ultimate ruler, you understand, but a principality, the principality. He became the lion prowling around looking for people to devour. He became the abuser, the harasser, the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren. He was the one who held the power of death, not ultimately, 
but in the sense that through the work of the devil in his temptation of Adam and Eve, death entered the world. And from that moment on, he became the figurehead of death, the figurehead of all of the punishment of sin, the figurehead of all of the curse of God. He, the enemy of God's people. And you see, there's a problem. Because it was our sin, because it was humanity's sin that enthroned him, for lack of a better word, it was a man that was necessary to defeat him and dethrone him. And in order for the devil to be defeated and justice to be met, it had to be a sinless man. But, you know, please put your hand up if you can defeat the devil. Problem, right? This is why it was necessary for God to become man. Because no one, none of us, even if we were sinless, would have the ability to defeat the devil. We needed someone who was human and someone with the power and the authority of God. But what a strange way of doing it, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine... Can you imagine what the angels must have thought when they heard the plan? We're going to redeem humanity, is the order. What would the angels think? We're going to go and defeat the one who holds death. Well, clearly strapping on armor, right? Now you, could, you could imagine Gabriel talking to the, the host, the angel host. No, 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 you're not going to need your weapons. Wait, what do you mean? Aren't we going to go defeat the one that holds death? Yes, but you're not going to need your weapons. You're going to need your harps. You know, what, what do you mean harps? Well, we're, we're, we're actually just going to go and sing. Why are we going to go sing? Well, because God is going to go get born in a virgin's womb. It's conceived in a virgin's womb in order to be born. I mean, if you're an angel, what are you thinking? Huh. I mean... I'm not sure if, oh, Gabriel, did you hear it right? Like, it just seems like a really weird plan. Yeah, no, it's definitely the plan. And the plan is God is going to put on human flesh and then he's going to go and die. Well, I thought we were defeating the devil. Yeah, we are. So how is dying going to help? What's the promise? Don't you remember? Death has to be defeated by death. It's the only way. Can you imagine the glee? Can you imagine the glee, the smirk on the face of the devil when Jesus was hung upon a cross? It's captured so beautifully in this, in this lovely book by an author called Calvin Miller and and. And in it, the whole thing's poetry. It's a poetical telling of the gospel story. And, and, and the devil stands there as Jesus dies 
and he rejoices and he elates and he shouts out to God the Father and he's saying to him, I've won. I've won. What are you going to do now? Your tears are my joy, he says. And oh, how, how happy he must have been with himself for three days, right? Best three days of the devil's life. I finally done it. There's no one to take the throne but me. But Sunday's coming, right? And as the sun rose on Sunday, the sun rose on Sunday. Up from the grave, he arose, he arose. Can you imagine the devil's face when he heard the crack of the stone in front of that tomb? And as Jesus Christ walked out shining in glory. When the God-man rose victorious, conquering death. And from that moment, the devil, though still present, knew he was defeated. And Calvin Miller says, as he describes that moment, he says something to the effect of, wealth, the father, I guess, I guess I lost. And that's it, isn't it? I guess I lost. A God-man came to defeat the devil. That's why John says in 1 John 3 verse 8, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you feel it? Let me show you Jesus doing this in, in life example. Luke paints it in the most beautiful picture. We won't read through the whole thing, but let me just point out to you in Luke 8. So in Luke 8, Jesus or Luke shows us Jesus combating the works of darkness and the devil. So in verse 22 to 25, we find what? The disciples in a boat in the midst of a storm. The church itself is threatened by the storms of darkness, which are representative of the darkness of this world, the kingdoms of darkness. And what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves, we're told. Verse 24, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. He stops the work of darkness. Then in verse 26, we're confronted with this demon-possessed man. No one can help him, we're told. No one can heal him. No one can bind him. He's, he's taken over by a legion of demons. Jesus comes. He commands the demons to be gone. And they're gone. And then we're confronted by the woman, right? Bound up in sickness. This is another work of corruption and the devil. We are bound up in sickness. And what does Jesus do? Though no one else can heal her, Jesus makes her well. And then we're confronted by even death itself, right? Jairus' daughter. 
He takes her by the hand and he calls to her. Come. And she comes forth. He defeats the one who had the power of death. The devil. But he does one more thing. He does one more thing. Have a look. Verse 15, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the, the biggest problem in our life is actually not death itself, right? Because, well, you're not dying right now. I mean, for some, of, some people, that's a reality. But for the vast majority of us, the actual death itself is not the problem. It's the fear of death that's the problem, right? This is why you get anti-aging cream. This is why when you go to the barber, this happened to me on Monday, when you go to the barber, I didn't even know this was a thing, he says to you, I notice the front of your hair is getting thin. Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. But I can fix it for you. I'm like, oh, you can fix my balding. That sounds pretty good. Yes. What I do is I take this stuff and he does it to me and he sprinkles this powder on it. And then he sprays it with some liquid and then your hair looks full again. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, well, it actually does look pretty convincing, right? And Josella said the same thing. It looks pretty convincing. Why? Because we're terrified of getting old. Why are we terrified of getting old? Because we know that eventually we're going to hit the floor and die, right? This is why people are perpetually chasing the latest health craze, the latest vitality thing. The latest way of making ourselves live longer, all in a bid to put off the inevitable. Benjamin Franklin said the two, two unavoidable things are what? Death and taxes. Well, you can avoid taxes. You cannot avoid death. But Jesus came that you might not fear death. Why? Because the thing that makes you afraid of death is actually not dying. I wonder if you realize that. What makes humans afraid to die is not dying. I mean, yeah, the idea of dying doesn't sound pleasant, right? But Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is bound up in the heart of man. The reality is, no matter how staunch an atheist is, at the end of days, when they're breathing their last, they don't truly believe they're going to dissolve into nothing. In the very bottom of their heart, they know there's something coming. They may not know what, but they know something's coming. Because God has wired our soul to, to look towards eternity. And deep down, though we may not want to admit it, deep down in our souls... We know that on the other side of death is judgment. And not just judgment, but an eternity. And not just an eternity, but outside of Christ, eternal damnation. Hell. A place which there are not fitting words to describe. And whatever you think of men like Jonathan Edwards and their description of hell... It is infinitely worse than anything they described. But the worst part about it is not 
just that it's hell. It's that when you've been there for 10,000 years, not bright shining like the sun, but in terrible darkness, you haven't even just begun because there's no ending and there will be no mercy. There will be no grace. But, but Christ came to remove that fear. That's why, he did, that's why the incarnation, brothers and sisters, so that you don't need to fear that. Why? Because you've received eternal life. Because your sin has been paid. Your punishment has been revoked. Everything against you has been removed so that you might look to death like a beautiful carriage taking you to your wedding day. That you might look at it and be, oh, praise the Lord for my coming death because I will see my Savior because I will see him face to face. I will finally lay eyes upon him because I will live forever in glory with him because there's no greater reward than him. This is the gift for you, brothers and sisters. He's taken away the fear of death. Don't be afraid of dying. Rejoice in your death. Doesn't Paul say it's better to be away with the Lord? I mean, who wants? I mean, let's be honest. Doesn't life in this world suck? The brokenness and sin and pain and sorrow and anguish and heartaches and doubts and Eternal bliss, eternal joy, eternal blessedness. This is our Savior, brothers and sisters. Angels sing the story. Do you? Can you say, This is my story? This is my song, praising the Savior all the day long. May God grant you to do so this Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray, Lord, that you would lift up our hearts towards you, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, that, Lord, we would find great delight in peering into the manger and seeing our Savior who was at the right hand of God. Grant us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.